Um, I'm Madawi Al-Rashid and I'm a visiting uh, professor at the Middle East Center and it's a pleasure to um, uh, welcome uh, Dr. Richard Schofield who's a, a colleague from the time when I was at King's just around the corner op opposite LSE. Um, uh, Richard is uh, in the Department of Geography at King's College and he's uh, the founder of the highly rated Geopolitics um, and International Boundaries Journal. Uh, his major study is um, the um, uh, Arabian Boundaries, new documents between 1966 and 1975. And the, uh, the series was uh, released in 2009 by Cambridge University Press, and it consists of 18 uh, volumes. His current research project include um, the unique geopolitics of island sovereignty disputes and border geographies, historiography, ethnography, and law. From the various titles, we sort of think that uh, Richard has actually uh, not only studied borders, but crossed several academic borders. Well, I, so. I think his uh, uh, research and publication reflect a kind of uh, appreciated um, interdisciplinarity, so geography, politics, mm -hmm. and uh, law. Uh, also ethnography. So uh, today he's going to talk to us about um, the title of his talk is uh, Middle East uh, Border Geopolitics, Established and Emerging Themes. Uh, and I hope to uh, uh, see some reflections on the current situation in, in the Middle East, which Richard uh, uh, confirms that he, he's going to do. Uh, thank you, Richard, for coming, and please join me in welcoming Richard to the LSC. Uh, just before we start, um, uh, we, we've got 30 minutes and then question and answer session, and uh, those of you who would like to tweet about the event, the hashtag is hashtag LSE S. Schofield, um, and uh, please be as accurate as possible. Uh, when you are tweeting. I know some people can get carried away and misrepresent uh, what is being said. Um, and uh, uh, welcome to Richard. Richard. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, is that coming through? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll try not to get too historical. I think one of the things that quite often can happen to a social scientist or someone that looks at a region is you get rather too depressed by what's happening there and you go back further and further in time. So many people wonder whether I'm a historian today rather than a geographer for that reason. Um, I did, um, as, as Madawi said, I did uh, start a journal about two decades ago called Geopolitics, and it's still going somehow. Um, but in the 20 years which have elapsed, geopolitics has become a really amorphous term. It's almost a rather like security. Uh, you have to put a prefix in front of the term geopolitics so that people know what you're talking about. So uh, what we mean by geopolitics is, is, is quite difficult to gauge sometimes. And uh, I would say that perhaps in certain areas, critical geopolitics and, else, uh, and in other ways, we've got a lot more accomplished in how we look at a power, power and abuses of power uh, as a discipline in geopolitics. But sometimes we, 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 we forget to deal with uh, some very, very crude state actions which continue to unfold in front of our eyes. Anyway, what I'll do, and that'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of give some uh, uh, evidence for such a statement in, 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 in the next half hour. 
I propose to go through quite a few slides. Most of them, thankfully, are not full of text. They're actually images and maps. And uh, uh, as a geographer, I'm, I'm reasonably happy with that. Um, I'd also say that um, the... Um, well, what I'll do is, is actually start with uh, what I would say are geopolitical contexts um, through which we can view a lot of the operation of contemporary boundary and territorial disputes within the Middle East. And let's have a look at these. Um, we'll look at them with recourse to maps in a minute. But territorial disputes and their association with conflict. Many, many studies written about uh, you know, the Northern Gulf in the 80s and the 90s for obvious reasons, Iraq's adventurism of those decades. The material resource dimension. Um, finalizing the Arabian political map from the 1990s, continuing to finesse the offshore map in the Gulf, those were essentially resource-related. That's the, very much the impetus. Certain territorial disputes, particularly those over islands, uh, can symbolize rivalries, and they, uh, ones in this region have tended to symbolize Arab-Persian Arab rivalries. Um, also, I think uh, another context are certain fractures within the so-called unity of the GCC, we see a few disputes, um, and we'll, we'll mention a couple here. But in more recent years, obviously, securitization seems to be the watchword everywhere, putting up walls, contemporary boundary securitization. Um, we'll say a few things about those. And latterly, newly emergent boundaries and borderlands. New states are appearing. More established states are, for the want of a better word, collapsing in terms of the reach of the state. And so there's some new interesting spatial uh, sort of form, uh, formations uh, which we're beginning to notice and remark upon. So let's look at some maps. The Northern Gulf, uh, here we see, well, you can just about see the Shat al-Arab and also the Kuwait-Iraq uh, boundary as well. Obviously, there was an association uh, in both uh, Iran's invasion, uh, Iraq's invasion of Iran in September 1980 and its invasion of Kuwait in August uh, 1990, 10 years later. There were uh, territorial themes um, at the root of conflict. There was uh, dissatisfaction with old colonial boundaries, very much linked to this rather subjective, deterministic question of Iraqi access to the Gulf. And uh, in a sense, uh, I suppose recent documents that have been released at the, uh, at the National Archives uh, have highlighted the degree to which this was, in many ways, this Iraqi access to the Gulf problem was a classic colonial imaginary in many ways. Britain, when it was drawing the boundaries of this region, was very, very conscious, or it seemed to suggest it was conscious, that it was creating a strategic time bomb for the future. And indeed, when um, the two sides agreed a major boundary along the middle of the Shatalarab River in 1975, you know, all of Britain's regional ambassadors in Baghdad and Kuwait and Tehran talked to each other and said, well, what on earth does this mean for Kuwait? Uh, there was a clear belief that uh, when Iran had the upper hand, if you like, on the Shat, read, on the Shat uh, dispute, that Iraq would turn on Kuwait. And uh, it was amazing the degree to which in Anglo-French consultations at the time they were speculating about the possibility of... Uh, a move south of Kuwait at this time and what it would spell for Western interests. I don't think any of us realized that the, those discussions were 
uh, quite as advanced as they were back in 75. Um, so there's that association with conflict. Uh, that's one context for, uh, for understanding boundary questions in this part of the world. The next one is the sort of material um, resource dimension. Um, if we look at the early 1990s, there was an awful lot of progress in sort of tidying up the boundaries of southern Arabia, Saudi Arabia and its neighbors. And uh, the material progress was made in three ways. First of all, boundary agreements were drawn, uh, boundary lines were drawn. Uh, but also the states of the region began to register their boundary agreements at the appropriate international institutions, such as the United Nations, to convince the legal community that they were serious about abiding these boundaries as permanent features of the map. So legal processing, that was another thing. And also the GCC worked out a body of sort of principles that work for the entrenchment of a territorial framework. Now, what explains that progress? Well, it's, it's, it's funny to think of an oil price uh, below $50 per barrel today or whatever, or near it at the spot market in Rotterdam. In the turn of the 90s, it was down near a 10 <laughs> you know, it was between 10 and 20. Uh, there was a real incentive at, these t at this time to maximize oil production in this particular region, going up to the boundaries of the, uh, of the states concerned. And uh, it meant that states began to explore in, uh, in, in areas of their borderlands that they'd previously left untouched because they were uh, seen as too sensitive. So again, I think that explained a lot of the rush to finalize boundaries uh, if we go offshore, there's still quite a bit of work to be done. Um, most of the boundaries here were agreed between Britain and on behalf of uh, its uh, protégés and Iran after it announced it was leaving the Gulf uh, in the late 60s. So they tried to get most of these done. There have been a few uh, additions to that map, but not that many, really, in the period since. Uh, again, you, you can see where there's generally a gap in the line. There's a few disputed islands, and you've got to sort out who they belong to before you draw maritime lines. And just to show that, um, you know, it's the northern Gulf again where there's quite a lot of work to be done here. Uh, that shows uh, where we are with drawing various boundaries. But if we look at it, Iraq and Iran, uh, uh, you know, they're very close to going back to agreeing the boundary I showed earlier in 1975, which went along the middle of a navigable channel. Uh, but the trouble is, do they go back to the line as it existed in 75 or the navigable channel today? And if you look at this particular boundary, you'll see that the channel has migrated to the west and to the south quite a bit. And Iraq thinks that nature's been very unkind and is conspiring against it because the river keeps moving, the channel keeps moving in, in, a, in a direction that's favorable to Iran. So there are many of these technical and legal questions that remain to be addressed. Um, um, regional rivalries and territorial disputes. Um, one of the fascinations of studying island sovereignty disputes is that they seem to be driven by two things. One, very pragmatically, if you can prove your ownership over an island, it, it generates exactly the same zones of maritime jurisdiction in surrounding seabed areas and sea areas as the coastland coastline of any state. Uh, so that's uh, up to 200 miles, if you like, of control over seabed resources and surrounding fisheries. But what they also tend to be 
is have a huge utility for symbolising disputes between states. You can sound off pretty much against your neighbour uh, uh, about how they're behaving over this particular island without any real danger of a, of a huge physical incident over an island uh, question themselves. Uh, I put those two books up uh, because, um, again, the, when you're talking about boundaries, the sort of impartiality becomes most clear when you're talking about island questions here. And I, I always show this to my students because the book on the left uh, is written by a guy called Amir Ahmadi, who's uh, 20 years ago was seen pretty much as a straight apologist for Iran at the time. And yet he's come up with a fantastic title for a book which summarizes that dispute beautifully. Um, and then there's a much better book, a more objective on the right, but it's got an awful title. How can you have a book about a uh, boundary or territorial dispute that was meant to be impartial and then call it the three occupied UAE islands? You know, so again, well, you can see how the publisher is. Uh, but again, uh, just a bit of a caution there. But, um, you know, certainly where um, Abu Musa and the Toms are concerned, uh, that is that is served very much as the barometer of regional relations between Iran and the Arab world, or at least it did through the 90s, maybe less so. Maybe it's returned to more of a bilateral issue today. Um, and then some rather strange things. If we go on to disputes which have occurred between, uh, you know, GCC states themselves, um, Again, there's, 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 a, there's another sort of geopolitical context here, whether it's dynastic rivalries, whether it's uh, whatever it is. But uh, we had a bizarre dispute, the longest-running dispute that's ever gone to the International Court of Justice. Went there in 1991. We didn't get a decision for 2001. And it was between Bahrain and Qatar over the Hawar Islands. And uh, at one particular phase of the dispute, one of the sides, Qatar, was very anxious to show that back in Ottoman times... It had sovereignty over this group of islands, where in fact there was no bunch of evidence in the archives to suggest that was a possibility. So they came up with some evidence that hinted at such a possibility. And this doesn't usually happen in the peaceful resolution of territorial disputes. Uh, but you, this was one of 80 documents that was deemed to be suspect that... Uh, that accompanied many more convincing documents that were in the Kateri Memorial that went before the courts. And if you, it was purporting to show that the, the uh, Hawar Islands were recognised by Britain as belonging to the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th century. But you'll notice that the British ambassador had supposedly given his consent to this by writing the words, OK. And uh, not very, very likely. It wouldn't have happened. And this happened way back in the 1860s. So, and here was another one. Um, again, trying to show the same sort of thing. Again, the fact that one state was prepared to resort to this sort of show is just how acute some of these uh, issues have been. And uh, I, again, not to blow up. No one's going to say that the UAE and Saudi Arabia are, uh, are threatening each other hugely. But there was a a small naval incident in early March 2010 in uh, Khur uh, to the west there. And you will see that uh, on this particular map, the United Arab Emirates is showing areas which it uh, uh, ceded to Saudi Arabia as belonging, well, not uh, agreed were Saudi in a, in a boundary agreement of 74. It, it's actually showing them as belonging to the Emirates. And also an oil field in the south 
again, it's, it's showing uh, as belonging to the UAE. Um, this was the old boundary agreement itself of 1974. There are a few issues uh, that are still unresolved relating to that. So there's a, there's a bit of an issue over this one in terms of inter-GCC tensions. Certainly when I put on a uh, workshop last year at the Gulf Research Center, this it was... <laughs> This was the most sensitive question that was, uh, uh, which was received when we were when we were discussing the boundary questions of the region. This was, we, I thought we were treading on eggshells there at times. Uh, so there's some issues there. Uh, securitization, walls going up. Really, that started, I suppose, in many ways with Kuwait putting up a defensive system after its experience of being invaded in, in 1990. It put up a sort of Berlin Wall type. Uh, uh, defense arrangement, almost in reverse, a big ditch and everything. So the idea that putting up sort of non-passable barriers just followed 9-11 isn't quite true, actually. There was quite plenty of evidence in it in this region before 9-11. Um, here are some of the plans for the, uh, the sort of separation barrier that's gone up between Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Uh, uh, and that, and there, you see the control towers there. That's there. For, for much of the extent of that boundary now. And, of course, it separates areas which are barely populated at all. So it's a, it's a rather strange feature. It was put up at a time uh, when America was encouraging the states of a region to close their boundaries around Iraq so that they couldn't feed the insurgency within. But it was, uh, 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 again, we see this in the southern end of the peninsula as well. New states, new states, uh, boundaries for new states. How do we produce those? This was the result of the um, Abyei arbitration at the Permanent Court of Arbitration. It uh, sort of delimited an area of the borderlands between Sudan to the north and uh, what becomes South Sudan to the south. Uh, but it was dealing with an old provincial boundary, and it was trying to turn that into an international one. Um, and the preference of the international community is always to go back when you're dealing with international boundaries to... Um, colonial agreements and sort of prioritise colonial evidence. But in this case, the colonial evidence was so threadbare. I mean, Britain had only been in the Anglo-Egyptian-Sudan condominium for four or five years, uh, knew nothing of the area, really. So all the arguments about provincial boundaries, in this case, the court said that they were too uncertain. There wasn't enough evidence. So they actually looked at other indicators for, for showing what the boundary could have been 100 years ago. Positive step in many ways, because they're looking at other human indicators rather than just colonial evidence. Of course, uh, um, we have uh, the KRG's uh, territorial extent is probably uh, considerably greater than that uh, uh, in, 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 uh, at the present moment, but we had the oddity until fairly recently where they... Kamala Dome in the Kirkuk oil field was supplying oil to both the Iraqi government and to the KRG itself. Um, and then looking at, well, one of the BBC's maps here, uh, looking at uh, obviously a, what for a geographer is, 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 a, is, is quite a, an unusual phenomenon. We seem to have with the, uh, it's, it's hard to talk of a block of territory for ISIS because uh, in the desert uh, areas, you don't generally get completely blocks of uh, 
to control territory, you get controls of major routes, as you did historically, along caravan routes and everything. Uh, so it's often uh, portrayed, for that reason, probably accurate, as a rather spidery sort of extent of control along the major routeways. But in many ways, what you have is a transboundary borderland state, uh, or a would-be state, if you like. Um, so uh, again, in spatial terms, we'll come back to this issue. It is quite unusual. Um, I suppose going back to the idea that the Sykes-Picot system uh, and the system of boundaries it's introduced is, is somewhat more in question than it has ever been. Um, when people talk about the Sykes-Picot system and when ISIS does, they talk more, more about the system, I think, because the, the actual agreement that was proposed by Britain and France is, is, doesn't bear a huge amount of relation to, to actually what happened at the end of that war. Uh, if you actually went back to the uh, de Bunsen, Maurice de Bunsen committee uh, that was held in 1914 and 15, that actually predicated a territorial uh, sort of potential outcome uh, supposing the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire. And that actually was much closer, uh, if you like, than the, the Sykes-Picot system that you see here. But looking back at this and looking back at one of the architects of... Uh, uh, of the mess Britain got itself into in this part of the world uh, in, during the First World War, Lord Balfour. Um, and there's a lovely quote I'm sure many of you have already heard. It's, in short, the powers have made no statement of fact which is not admittedly wrong and no declaration of policy which at last, at least in the letter, uh, they have not always intended to violate. And, of course, that was talking about trying to reconcile the Hussein McMahon correspondence, the Sykes-Picot Treaty, and the Balfour Declaration. Um, but the, the part that's not always quoted was he, he also said, look, we've got to make such international arrangements, economic and territorial, as will enable each region to develop itself to the best advantage without giving occasion for jealousies or disputes. So he was also sort of saying that if we're coming up with a new set of boundaries, they've got to have an economic rationale. We can't just define boundaries for security reasons. And... Uh, uh, and I think that uh, summarizes in many ways the challenge that most people still recognize when we look at international boundaries around the world today. And that's that potentially uneasy clash at any stage between the two great Western lobbies. The free trade movement, which, which to generalize horribly, wants to see, uh, it, for the most part, boundaries come down, and the defense establishment that actually want to see uh, uh, them uh, go quite the opposite way. Borderlands in the news. Um, uh, we'll, we'll skip some of this. I don't think we need to look at uh, uh, Ukraine again. Other than to say that uh, the international community's absolute determination that we stay and respect the current territorial framework is apparent here as it is apparent uh, also with, with Iraq and uh, Syria. I mean, I think it's quite ironic that it was only 10 years ago um, that, I mean, I attended a conference in Jordan and, and one in, in uh, Turkey as well, where the United States was pretty much trying to securitize the boundaries of Iraq. And it was actually saying, you know, we need to make this line which uh, sort of uh, goes back, I guess, to 1920 and an Anglo-French agreement and then they 
uh, at a time when the League of Nations was suffering, France and the UK actually uh, put this boundary down between Syria and uh, Iraq as an absolute showcase boundary, as a model boundary a settlement, showing the world that they could do these things. Um, but this boundary, when it was first announced, uh, Gertrude Bell and uh, Arnold Wilson, uh, Iraq's chief architects, did kind of say, well, what's the point of putting a boundary down here? You know, um, it doesn't work in the desert. You know, it, and, uh, and I think some of the objections which were being raised 10 years ago when the idea was to put this boundary down as a much more permanent feature, blocking uh, uh, sort of movement across it, um, the, some of the objections obviously were that it was cutting across the Jazeera, uh, there were family on either side of, uh, of, of, of the Jazeera. Um, you know, historically, there were all those stories about the, um, the men of Mosul looking to the beautiful women of Aleppo for their wives. There was an awful lot of cross-contact here. Um, and I think in our current discussions of uh, the threat posed by ISIS, we tend to forget that uh, there was an awful lot of human contact and transboundary movement historically. Not in, terms, not in huge terms of numbers, but certainly in terms of movement, there was a lot of connections between Mosul and uh, and northern Syria. And of course, had we followed the uh, Sykes Pico to Valletta, uh, you know, all of the territory currently controlled by ISIS would be in that area uh, that was earmarked for French control in Sykes Pico. Um, come back to certain uh, issues here. Um, <coughs> advancing our understanding of the borderland, I, I, I won't go through all this, this is too much geography, I think. Um, but in normal terms, um, a political borderland is a, um, certainly in pre-globalization terms, um, the greater interdependency you had between populations either side of the boundary, uh, geographers would say that the wider the borderland becomes because you have interdependencies, uh, you have human links, trade links, or whatever. And so a boundary, instead of a line of discontinuity, becomes much wider, and, and you create a political borderland. Um, now, this wasn't often, because the levels of interstate cooperation in the Middle East were always rather poor and underdeveloped, you didn't really have uh, these uh, uh, noticeable anywhere across the region, really. Um, uh, I mean, you had some improvements in, 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 in a few places in, in recent decades, but let's move on anyway. Um, the, one of the biggest uh, growth areas in the way in contemporary border studies is looking at borderscapes, essentially the visualities of international boundaries and the sort of meaning of boundaries at a local level for the people who live there. And this has been a big area, uh, a big growth area in border studies and, and critical geopolitics within geography in recent decades. Um, but the security community, of course, uh, and is becoming much more concerned with the collapse of state authority in the marginal areas of the state. And we've had this term sort of come up quite a bit recently called conflict borderlands. Conflict borderlands in, in security studies. Um, and also concerns about sort of collapsing uh, the collapsing, the collapse of central authority in, in certain states, 
Um, we've, we've had this theme come up, the spaces in between as well. So the spaces in between, um, the conflict borderland, uh, are really, we're not referring to so much as to the effect that a boundary has on its borderland. It's, it, it, it's talking much more about marginal areas of a state where the sovereign authority of the state has been challenged or whatever, and new spaces are appearing. So there's a bit of a mismatch here about the way in which the term borderland is actually being used. But many historians in recent years have also said that, you know, we've been so caught up historically with looking at what boundaries and borderlands have represented, we actually don't know that much about them materially. We don't know how they've developed historically. We don't know what uh, groups have actually settled and populated borderlands. And uh, what I would say is if you join those two observations together with the current uh, preoccupation of the security community, there's an awful lot of work about uh, an awful lot we can do in looking at in terms of uh, um, borderlands themselves and how they work in many areas. Um, Let's just have a look at, I mean, these are sort of ideas that are coming from geographers at the moment about sort of borderscapes, uh, borderscapes of confrontation. Here's the, uh, the Golan Heights, um, an area uh, occupied by Israel, an area part of Syria, where the Israelis have actually chopped away a huge chunk of the hill so they get a better security uh, uh, a better view over what's happening in, in southwest Syria. Um, um, again, uh, borderscapes, um, a lot of interest now in sort of also the historical materialities of borderscapes. Here's an old Mamluk bridge over the River Jordan. In the area of Geisha, you can see in the background very faintly a Jordanian uh, sort of patrol tower, uh, control tower peering down on this, this region. Uh, obviously, the Israel security wall um, is, is, is very obviously uh, a major development of recent times. Um, people are talking about the sort of dysfunctions of borderscapes as well, the dysfunction of uh, traffic trying to cross them in various areas. We see, we see that here. Um, this was uh, in December. This was one of the crossing points coming from the West Bank down into southern Israel near Beersheba, and that's the uh, sort of processing gates that Palestinians have to pass through when they want to work in, work in Israel there. So uh, a lot of concentration here uh, in terms of borderscapes with actually the visual and the, and the meaning for individuals at the borders, and there's a lot of research being done on that. If we looked at... Uh, I'll, I'll go fairly quickly from here, but if we were looking at... Um, um, traditional and historical borderlands. There's probably only one in the Middle East that uh, could be viewed in that way, and that would be the old Perso-Ottoman boundary, um, which for many, many decades, uh, let's look at some maps here. Let's look at this one first of all. Um, the oldest uh, nominal boundary treaty text uh, signed anywhere was the 1639 treaty between the Persians and the Ottomans, which was called the Treaty of Peace and Demarcation of Frontiers. It's the oldest boundary treaty to have those words in it. And really, this was one area of the world, um, the Zagros Mountains, where authorities shifted to the left, to the right, to the west, to the east, 
in a sort of um, constant sort of sort of nibbling away by what were fairly distant regional imperial powers, the Persian and the Ottoman powers, and uh, the authority in a great big strip of both Ottoman Sultan and uh, Persian Shah was weak and disputed. And this was one area in the 19th century where Britain and Russia, the big European five, had actually got on during the 1840s and managed to agree quite a few things. They decided that they needed to stabilize this zone uh, for Russia to stabilize its political interests in the north, Britain so that it could penetrate Mesopotamia in the south. Um, but in many ways, it was, it was a story of, as I say, here misplaced, grandiose ambition. Britain uh, and Russia did a very limited survey of this borderland and drew what they called was a status quo line in 1844, which they reckoned was the balance of where the boundary should be. And, of course, this was Britain's uh, proven tactic to freeze moments in time and then say they are permanent thereafter. Um, And that survey then became ratified in a series of treaties where they tried to establish uh, and cement this particular balance that they had observed. But the trouble was that they didn't have adequate geographical knowledge to do this. They weren't empowered to force the Ottomans or the Persians to agree to anything that they uh, were proposing. Um, And this process didn't get finished until 1914, uh, of actually putting a line down within this traditional frontier zone. Um, if we uh, look at this particular map, what they had to do uh, in the end was come up with a map in which they reckon the boundary possibly would be included somewhere. And it took them 20 years or so to come up with the world's largest boundary map. It's 80 feet long. It was called the Identic Map. It was drawn by the Persians and the Ottomans. It looked wonderful. You see a section of it here, Mount Ararat in the north. Uh, But it had 4,000 mistakes in it. And uh, so um, in some ways, uh, the the one borderland with a history to it, Britain tried and France tried to narrow it and couldn't do, uh, couldn't do satisfactorily. They weren't prepared to do it. They wouldn't throw the resources at it. They weren't competent enough to do it. But also the local powers, if we can call them that, the Persians and the Ottomans, also uh, reacted to the exercise in different ways as well. The, the Ottomans uh, extended, used this whole exercise uh, of mapping and surveying the boundary to extend their authority to uh, an area which it hadn't been present in before. And the Persians, they thought they'd get a better deal going along with Britain than they would confronting the Ottoman Empire directly. So this is a, as I say, this is the one traditional frontier zone uh, that, where the European powers threw an awful lot of resources at, at, at settling this boundary in complete sort of uh, uh, contrast to, to many of the others in the region. Now, um, I suppose if that was a, the, the, perhaps the region's only historical borderland, if you, if you might uh, look at it that way, if we look at Saudi Arabia and Yemen, I suppose we've had a a borderland which has been defined by an overlap of territorial claims, uh, some of which only became apparent after the Yemens uh, unified in 1990. 
And what we had was a massive overlap of territorial claims going into the 90s, and then we had a boundary introduced in 2000 uh, right through there. This boundary uh, is, is, is again marked uh, uh, in, in many areas by these kind of big stone towers and wires. Um, you know, there are, there are crossing points at various places. But you have an irony here where you have a sort of very big uh, prominent fence and then of course you have a, um, a Yemen today where, you know, authority over state space is bitterly contested. But even without through Yemen historically, there was always a feeling of being Yemeni, which didn't equate, if you like, to uh, any loyalty to the government as such. So here, uh, roughly, we see in the brown areas, we see the Houthi uh, stronghold in the north, areas where it's currently maybe in control going down to the south. Uh, this was produced by the New York Times. I don't, know, I don't know where to get the information from. But, of course, areas where... Al-Qaeda might be operative, and then other areas. The point being that to the north you've got this wonderful, uh, wonderfully secure boundary marked out on the ground, but the other side, uh, you, you, you know, what, what, what is that boundary separating? So some of the securitization has, has been a bit strange. Um, let me move on to something completely different, and that was the Abyei dispute at the into the Permanent Court of Arbitration, 2008 and 9, yeah, I'll, I'll get on with it. Um, um, what's the point to draw from this? Um, as I say, um, I, I mentioned this earlier at the outset, I think the, the good point to come out of this is that if areas of the state are trying to break away in, the, in, the, uh, you know, in, in various areas, uh, not just of the Middle East, but the ex-colonial world, um, what the court decided in this, this instance was that the colonial evidence in terms of evidence for a provincial boundary wasn't strong enough to actually uh, follow such colonial evidence and putting a delimitation down. So what they did uh, was to come up with all other kinds of human indicators, burial grounds, oral testimonies, all sorts of things, and came up with a tribal formula for actually... Uh, defining a territory rather than a territorial formula. Now, there was a, a, a lot of confusion in this particular award. As usual, it was meant to uh, uh, placate both parties, give them something, uh, and it was a compromise like many of these things are. But I think that, that, that going forward is, is quite interesting. And, uh, you know, if we look back to how some Arabian states were actually defined territorially in the early part of the 20th century... Um, uh, when uh, Britons first started asking how could we define Kuwait as a, as a territory, uh, their sort of lead historian, or I can't remember if it was Saldana or Lorimer, uh, said the boundaries of Kuwait are for the most part fluctuating and undefined. They are at any given time the limits of the tribes, which then either voluntarily or under compulsion owe allegiance to the Sheikh of Kuwait. And uh, so I, I think that was a, the very fact that we began to look at other things was, was, was actually quite useful. I'll say one more thing, that uh, international law is getting a bit better or uh, uh, offering more hope uh, for, uh, is offering more hope for local communities uh, in certain decisions it's made recently. 
This was one far from this region. It was between Namibia and Botswana. Uh, it was over the, um, uh, a, a little island in a river uh, that was flooded periodically. They, the, Botswana won this case. The island was given to it. But again, the court said, and we're going to rely on the UN non-navigational uh, convention uh, for the use of waterways, for non-navigable waterways, and we're going to say that locals from the region can use all of the waterways around the island. So in terms of new states appearing and whatever, I think, I think there's a, there is actually quite a possibility uh, that there are certain developments in law now that are encouraging uh, for, for the way in which we might draw boundaries in the future. I have a, we can leave this up. Uh, uh, these are a few uh, sort of conclusions I'd like to sort of draw, but let's leave those up and uh, for the time being in the background. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Richard. That's, uh, we covered quite a lot in time and space. Yeah, I thought it was a longer talk. Um, yes. Um, <laughs> And uh, f quite a lot of people have actually uh, discussed how uh, a lot of the problems in the region uh, is a function of or a reflection of a map that went badly wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think you confirmed that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yes, well, lots of questions, and, um, um, uh, uh, but, uh, but I like the, your uh, optimistic conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, uh, let me just ask one question. Uh, to abuse my role as the chair. Um, obviously, before Sykes-Picot, which is going to be 100 years old uh, next year, there were ways of imagining uh, the region. Mm -hmm. And I think what we have is basically the Ottoman uh, way of um, administering this great you know, boundaries, basically, and the provinces they had. Um, was there any attempt to incorporate that kind of division of the territory in Sykes-Picot, or was there any discussion, if, if you're aware of any discussion in London and Paris, uh, whether that original uh, administrative boundary drawing that had lasted for quite a long time came into the imagining of, of Sykes-Picot or, or the, um, you know, the attempt to reimagine the region? I mean, they had those Ottoman yearbooks. Uh, I think they did take a look at those. If you look at the archival record, uh, you know, the Salname, the, yeah. the sort of yearbooks where they would give vague indications of what their various Ottoman provinces and districts were. Um, there, there are some areas where they followed Ottoman districts quite, you know, or tried to incorporate them reasonably. Uh, um, there are also, I mean... I was at a conference recently where, given that you were going to introduce these new states, there probably, probably wasn't any obviously better way to do it. Uh, that's not saying that they were useful or good at all. I mean, they did try and use uh, Ottoman uh, territorial definition as far as they could in many areas. Yeah. But, uh I'm going to take three questions. Uh, please be brief uh, and don't ask three questions in one uh, so that we could have a wide range of people um, having the opportunity to, to ask questions. Um, and then we'll give the op uh, you uh, yeah. uh, time to answer these. Any, any questions? 
Yes, the far end, and then... Uh, one here, please. Uh, could you wait for the um, uh, microphone, please? Yeah, thank you, Sandra. Thank you, Richard. Um, um, I have in mind a question of two uh, parts around Lebanon, the Syrian-Lebanese border. What is the point of reference for it, since both states? perhaps a creation of the French. Is it the French uh, records to, to, to uh, determine the, the separating line in face of Syria's um, you know, reluctance to do it? So which criteria would you apply if you were asked to, to, to arbitrate in it? And the other side of it, the, the sea boundaries for the gas and oil with Israel and Cyprus. This is it colonial? Also, what is, what is the role you can see it in this case with international arbitration? Is it like the neutral zone between Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, or you have some other ideas? Final question during this first round. Yes, it's up there. Um, could you explain possibly how the... Kurdish uh, people came to be divided into uh, divided up into so many different countries and what do you think given happened over the last what is it 20, where that might be going in terms of boundaries right three questions uh Middle Eastern problems and boundaries, Lebanon, Syria, Cyprus, and Israel, mm -hmm. and the Kurds. Okay. That's a lot. Gets over quite a bit of it. <laughs> yes. I don't think anyone would say that um, conflict and, you know, really can be attributed to boundaries in the end. I mean, they're only the frames uh, for what, what's inside them in many, in many ways. Um, you know, and I don't think historically the the problems uh, that we're seeing now with Syria, Iraq, and the collapse of state authority have much to do with the boundaries there. I mean, there may be artificial, absurd creations of states in many areas of North Africa and the Middle East, but it doesn't mean necessarily that, you know, the state idea for a long while didn't triumph whatever the boundaries were. I think while we have had problems about boundaries, they tend to be uh, ones of access and communications, almost of congestion, and con we've seen contestation. I think the Northern Gulf, as I said, always, the, the colonial powers were always troubled by the boundaries they had introduced there. And I think a lot of that imaginary, uh, original colonial imaginary was politicized, it's been politicized and fairly fully and taken up by Iraq in the period since. It, has always, it did always feel squeezed out. I think there was a territorial issue there and there could be in the future. Um, um, I think elsewhere it, 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 it's, it's, it's more difficult to say that it is colonial boundaries which are causing uh, the, the state's problems. Um, 
obviously, uh, you know, I was at a conference in Israel at the end of last year, and of course, when they, uh, one of the commentators uh, was saying, "Well, of course, the Arab-Israeli is a complete exception. We can't talk about it in, in, in the same way because of the complexity of issues there." But nonetheless, it is uh, uh, that—that's probably the ever region where you'd have to say uh, boundaries are a huge problem. Um, I mean. It's quite often when you have territorial disputes, serious ones, that states go back in time and, and say, you know, it is the boundary that's the origins of our problems. Um, you know, you could set up for Ethiopia, Eritrea recently in other states as well, but is it really the boundary or is, it, is that being used as an excuse uh, uh, between uh, two leaderships that don't get on? I, I don't know. I mean, we can talk for a long time about that. Um, Moving on to your second question, um, boundaries for Lebanon. Um, well, you probably know as, as well as I would what the original calculation was. Um, the um, French certainly were, were uh, the guys who did the, the legwork there in, in terms of proposals for boundaries even before uh, they, they were actually agreed. Um, it's not really my, my area of expertise um, in, in terms of... Were you actually asking what would be a more ideal boundary for Lebanon? Yes, exactly. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought so <laughs> on that one because Britain didn't have a huge hand in it. Um, the, I mean, we're actually holding a little conference at King's on similar subjects on Friday afternoon. I know Michael Kerr is talking about uh, that, that very, very issue, uh, Lebanon and Syria, Syrian irredentism, what might an ideal Lebanon look like. So I'm going to cop out and say, listen to what he says uh, in some ways. Um, no, I wouldn't have done it. I mean, there, there have been many suggestions over the decades that we redraw boundaries on various different criteria, and uh, usually you, you introduce as many problems as you, you, you would solve by doing so. So... so Regions have generally taken the pragmatic decision that we keep our boundaries for better or for worse. But of course, um, the Middle East is, is in a different spot than it was five or ten years ago, so everything is, is, is seemingly possible. The, the second one, the yeah, I mean, obviously, most of the Eastern European, Eastern Mediterranean states, from Turkey all the way around, Turkey especially, probably wishes Cyprus wasn't there as an island because it really does complicate uh, all of the maritime boundary uh, agreements uh, that would otherwise be, be signed. An island always has that in effect uh, in terms of making the... I mean, there have been a number of agreements uh, between Cyprus and its neighbours um, uh, in recent years, uh, boundaries drawn basically on an equidistant principle, um, not too difficult. Obviously, Turkey is, is uh, challenging the right of, of, of Cyprus to, to make such agreements in certain areas. Um, uh, we have the complication of Lebanon and Israel, uh, of those two states not having agreed a, a, a point for their, where their boundary hits the coast. Um, and uh, there's a, there's, I don't think there's potential for overlap of uh, claims there, really, but, but that's a difficult issue. 
Gaza as well has a, uh, is sort of squeezed out of the maritime map. I, I mean, I've got a... Um, I, I mean, there's, it's a heightened area of interest there. There are one or two geopolitical problems, mainly Turkey, Lebanon, Lebanon and Israel, but I don't think there are too many insuperable problems to drawing maritime boundaries in that region. Um, the various agreements that have been signed have been fairly straightforward. Kurds. The Kurds. Um, well, obviously, everyone talks about the Treaty of Sev in, in 1920 and the, the territory which was promised in that agreement for an independent uh, Kurdish area. But I don't think even that that was being proposed anywhere near encompassed all of the Kurdish areas. Um, the, again, I would, the determination of the international community and the international legal community to stick with um, the current framework of state territory and the current boundaries is quite striking. Um, and I think there is a feeling that, you know, you might open up a Pandora's box uh, on many levels if you were to redraw state boundaries, uh, that this might actually uh, threaten the stability of the current territorial order. So um, I, I would say that I don't think there is much prospect now, of, of uh, even now, of, of an independent Kurdistan uh, resulting in the medium term. Others might have different opinions in, in, in this particular, particular room. But certainly there's never been a, much of a prospect of a, uh, a united entity across the four states that have a, a major Kurdish population. Second round of uh, questions. Yes, please. Um, you finished your talk with the... I presume Okavango uh, dispute, or if it was between Botswana and Namibia. Yeah. Um, and it was very good to hear that the uh, decision involved the ability of the people to move across because maybe they were nomadic or whatever. So is there any idea at all of a flexible boundary which takes account of uh, nomadic movements of people and so on? Yeah, the idea of fuzzy boundaries, and uh, I think they've been talking about, talked about in a Sudanese context. I mean, the problem with the Namibia-Botswana world was that although it said to Botswana, you won the war and you won the territory, uh, uh, and it countered that with the thing you've just mentioned, with the freedom of movement um, uh, and the river channels around the island... Um, that in the end it's left to the two states to implement such access. And uh, I think the, the tribe who are a nomadic one, a Caprivi tribe in Namibia who come down onto the island, haven't always had experienced that freedom of movement that was promised in the judgment. And, you know, critics of the award would say that you can't have it both ways. You can't say that in sovereign terms a, a, a bit of territory belongs to one state and then say, but you, you will allow the people in, because that can only be affected by interstate cooperation. Nonetheless, in terms of uh, border management, fuzzy boundaries, if, if you like, to afford that local uh, uh, freedom of movement, 
are being promoted and talked about and have been for some time. And I do think, um, given that the more that they're mentioned in legal judgments and definitions, the more they'll be, um, the more they'll perhaps, we'll see the beneficial aspects of those. Um, but I do think, you know, if, you, if we are anticipating possibly seeing areas, more areas to seed from states, and we have precedents in recent years, obviously with Eritrea, with southern Sudan, um, I do think they're, they're looking at more creative ways um, for actually drawing boundaries. Um, but I do think ultimately that's for negative reasons, and that's the absence of colonial evidence that they'd like to fall back upon. Yeah. Any other questions? Barbara? Um, whenever the uh, just a question about Sykes-Picot uh -huh. how long do you, would you say that that lasted was it a meeting in November well I mean as soon as you had the revolution in Russia uh, and that, therefore, it was not anything that one should be referring to now. Not um, relevant to current situation. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the detail, yeah, I agree. Yeah, but, I mean, it, it, it's become the watchword for a system. It, it's just become the watchword for the colonial boundaries that were, that eventuated over the first, you know, half of the 20s, really. Um, and, and when they were doing the maps for the lines, for the mandates and so on. I, I uh, understand that there were no, uh, when they were drawing these lines, there were no maps for the line between what was the Palestine mandate and... No, that, I mean, that wasn't agreed until 1922 and 1923. Uh, and that uh, the consequence of that was that when you come to the line where, um, what is it, seven villages, Lebanese villages are below the line, and, um, and this is cult, you know, culturally speaking, and does culture ever come into this as a consideration of, of whether, um, in a way of, to determine where lines should be? I mean... It can do, but obviously what you see in international boundary treaties is just a description of a line, really. Uh, so you've got to look at the record of discussions, of the considerations, of the things that were in the mind which actually you know, resulted in the line. I mean, the, the Syria-Iraq boundary of 1920, the first effort at that boundary, I think you had hundreds of miles described in about three lines of text. And it was the same for many boundaries in the region. They had absolutely no detail, obviously. And so it's always been a problem for the post-colonial states to actually work out what was meant by those definitions. And it drives, drives them mad, really. Um, but I think with Sykes-Picot, yeah, the, it's, it's more a discussion of, the, of, of that system now. Um, the, I mean, there, there were quite very full uh, investigations in some ways 
of local opinion. If you think of a League of Nations commission that looked at most of the fate of Mosul province in the early 1920s, and all the papers are available up in Oxford still, um, you know, it, it, was a, it was a pretty detailed, uh, uh, if not perfect, uh, sort of exercise uh, uh, and a sort of uh, consultation of, of local opinion. Um, and uh, if we are to believe the Brits, it was, it was a pretty close-run thing. Always were very careful when they do a survey, so they're they're mapping. I am assuming was regarded as. For certain areas, I mean, particularly those that were closer to uh, Anatolia uh, and the eastern Mediterranean, but their mapping, once you went down to the areas they tried to extend their authority in the 19th century, down the eastern side of the Gulf, down to Yemen, uh-huh. then it was much, much less secure, uh, the mapping. Yeah. So in the, in the North Africa, okay. Again, North Africa, I mean, I mean, certain areas where they only controlled the coastal strips in Tripartania and Cyrenaica, really, before the Italians got in there. So the, the level of Ottoman mapping... I mean, the trouble is not too many people uh, have Ottoman Arabic or to actually be competent to go and look at the records. So when they actually have disputes over boundaries that go before the ICJ or the, um, or the uh, Permanent Court of Arbitration... Those with Ottoman Arabic are really like gold dust, you know, uh, going and seeing what's in their archives and their vaults. But I don't think the mapping uh, as a whole has ever been collected together uh, of of that particular region. I mean, people like Fred Anscombe and uh, others would know better, but Eugene Rogan probably as well, but I I don't think uh, there's been a project... There's been a lot more research of the Ottoman archives of recent territorial questions in recent years. There's a guy called Artes uh, who's just published a book on the Ottoman-Persian frontier of Cambridge University Press. And he's been through all sorts of Ottoman, again, data sources and come up with quite a, a lot of the uh, documents. But he was disappointed with the amount of maps he found in, in Istanbul. Um, Richard, just um, one uh, minor question. I remember in a dispute between um, Saudi Arabia and Oman, I think in the uh-huh. 1950s, over uh, the um, w- one important territory, the intervention of oil companies mm-hmm. who started uh, mapping the area for basically uh, ser- you know, searching for oil. And one way was to, to establish whose territory, territory it was uh, is to go back to some, no records, but a tradition of uh, who did the population pay the Islamic tax, yeah. the zakat for. Yeah. And then there was um, uh, this kind of um, approach to, to claiming the territory and the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you could prove that uh, X tribe paid you tax in the 18th century, then it is definitely yours in the 20th century. Was there, I mean, in, uh, this kind of practice, um, uh, you know, noticeable elsewhere in the region? I'm not aware of it except in this particular, uh, the Gulf area. No, I mean, the, I mean, as you know, in the Saudi case, um, 
the first claims they made when they were challenged by Britain as to where their boundaries began and ended in Arabia were put down on that basis that these uh, are the this is the territory that is claimed because the tribes who inhabit these areas pay religious taxes would respond to a call for jihad and uh, this is territorial control as it exists but then they found the problem of actually putting lines around that sort of thing because how do you put straight but the tribe itself is moving I know how do you put and of course the in traditional Arabian geopolitics the the scarcer the resources and the further you have to travel from for them the bigger the tribal grazing ground as well so um, you, you know there was a real challenge therefore to put but Saudi Arabia had to meet Britain's arguments, and Britain was putting lines down. So Saudi Arabia had to counter with lines as well, and they didn't sit well with those claims which are articulated on that way. So they got those very famous uh, Harvard Law School profs, uh, Dick Young and Richard Manley, who actually wised them up and said, you know, you've got to claim territory in the same way that the Brits do. So from 1949, they came up with claim lines which were articulated in a way that uh, they felt they could meet the Brits on, on, those, on those areas. In terms of, well, traditional, I mean, Yemen in the, um, uh, in, in the negotiations with Saudi Arabia said, we're not using Britain's colonial evidence. We're going back to maps of um, going back hundreds of years when Yemen was one of the was a huge area in Arabia. We want to ignore the imprint of, uh, of British colonialism. We'll claim on the basis of the general recognition of the area of Yemen that was lent in pre-colonial times. But they still ended up with a, a territory which was very close to which Britain defended in South Yemen uh, for that. Um, I mean, the only place where Britain tried to use... Um, I suppose, human indicators to put boundaries down was in the former United Arab Emirates, where you got this patchwork quilt of, of different sheikhdoms, uh, non-contiguous territories like Ajman and Sharjah and three or four different little bits. And for many, it was uh, almost an admission that that system uh, you know, of territorial sovereignty, which was at odds with Islamic sovereignty, which is communal, just just didn't really work, you know. Yeah. There's another case of Oman, and it's, it's got this territory where the UAE is in between. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes. uh, for I mean, Mata, is it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have Oman, then you have the UAE, and then another bit of Oman. Yeah, we've well, got the Sandan Peninsula, yeah, you've yeah, got a non-contiguous territory. Yeah, absolutely yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, Sandra? Thank you. Thank you. Nowadays, uh, some speaks about a new Middle East, and I see in New York Times put a map of new Middle East that, for instance, Iraq divided into three, Kurd, Shia, Sunni, Syria, also three. What's your opinion about uh, this map and new Middle East? Thank you. Let's take another. Uh, uh, was there another question? Yes, too. Yeah. While you're there, Sandra, saves you going up and down. Thank you. It's a, really a point of clarification. I may have misunderstood, but I thought during your talk you implied at one point that there was no direct uh, relationship between lines on the map and conflict in the Middle East. 
talking about Sykes-Picot in particular. Um, could you elaborate on that? I mean, it's a fairly stark statement to say that there is no connection between lines on the map and conflict. Okay, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go back to that one first, actually. Um, I mean, I, I, talking as a social scientist, um, I, I mean, I, I, I've said that as, as far as I was concerned, you know, certainly the northern Gulf, Iraq's boundaries with Iran and Kuwait, there is a clear association with conflict, which I don't think can be denied. Um, obviously, as a social scientist, you're, you'll be charged with making deterministic statements if you say that the shape and size of states and where boundaries are drawn actually causes conflict. Um, you know, that's a viewpoint that was prevalent 100 years ago. I mean, I think you can say that they can contribute massively to conflict. Um, the, um, where we have congestation um, in, um, in human territorial terms and we have um, sort of overlapping state claims, then, of course, lines become hugely important. But, um, um, again, I, I'm not saying they aren't uh, massively important, but um, uh, in terms of disputes and conflicts, boundaries are often blamed for them. Uh, but are the boundaries always really at the root of, of those um, disputes and conflicts? I think that's what I was trying to say. Um, I mean, obviously, there's been a massive problem if we look at the Northern Gulf um, with um, the way, in, in some ways, in which the boundaries have been drawn there. Uh, but I, I wouldn't be so... I didn't mean to be hard and fast uh, in saying that. I meant to be rather hard and fast in not saying the opposite. Yeah. And the New, the New York map. Yeah, New I was, talking to, the guy, I was yeah. talking to the guy who was producing that a couple of weeks ago. And... Um, Obviously, you know, throughout uh, at the time when I Iraq uh, was falling apart in the early 70s or so, we thought with the Kurdish rebellion led by Barzani, um, and one reason, obviously, Saddam Hussein, as vice chairman then of the Ba'ath Party, signed the uh, Algiers Accord with Iran, uh, was to put an end to that civil war, which everyone was saying was threatening Iraq even then. Uh, with the collapse into a Kurdish fiefdom in the north, you know, a Sunni middle and the Shiite south. And we've heard that again. We heard that again throughout the Iran-Iraq war. We've heard that many, many times, and it, it's, never come, it's never really come to pass. Um, obviously, it's easy to go back to the three uh, Ottoman uh, provinces of Mosul, Baghdad, and Basra uh, and suggest those three as possible states. Um, and... You know, that's always been recognized as a possibility that, that we might have a breakup along those lines. And that map, I suspect, wasn't terribly difficult to draw. I mean, whatever, whatever way would you suggest uh, uh, for, for uh, Iraq into, divided into three? For Syria, though, um, I mean, I haven't seen the map in question, but I could guess what it might be. Um, um, it, it, I think that must be largely conjecture. Uh, was it? Was it? What was it showing? Was it showing? Right. Well, uh, I, th I think this is the map that was 
that became controversial. In fact, two weeks ago, we had uh, Professor Heidemann who showed the map as uh -huh. an example of one of the ways in which uh, somebody's imagining the New yeah. Middle East, and it's contrasting the, the current uh, borders that are based on sort of multi-ethnic, multi-sectarian, multi-religious with, extended, uh, with, so with the sectarian, sectarian uh, entities, yeah. and it's just have divided the whole region into either ethnic states or religious states. How many states did yeah. he end up with? Oh, we, could, we didn't <laughs> count. <laughs> Does anybody remember how many states? Uh, uh, I mean, that's map. Uh, that's been that's been tried. Uh, it's about 20 years ago. There was a similar experiment uh, for actually redefining the political map of Africa by nationality, and we ended up with 2,000 states. In, in, in that particular project uh, at a local level. I mean, some would be subsumed into wider federations, of course. But, uh, um, but it's, it's always this conspiracy. I mean, the same thing can be said about Sykes-Picot because in the imaginary of every Arab in the, in, in the colonial and post-colonial period, Sykes-Picot was the thing that, that is the betrayal. It symbolized Absolutely. so many things. Yeah. The betrayal of the British and the French and the you know, unfulfilled promises. Um, and uh, uh, it's interesting how uh, even today, I mean, just as, uh, as uh, you know, June, we had the first act of, the, of IS is to go on this border and stick a, yeah, very, a flag very symbolic. because of the symbolic yeah. significance of it. Uh, Anti-imperial, but also anti-historical. Uh, yes, yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, very interesting uh, way of imagining the world. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. I think it, is, it is interesting, and it's been done for Europe as well. I mean, people have talked about, you know, the fourth world being the oh. sort of... Uh, nations uh, that might gain statehood within a decentralized Europe in the future. Um, you know, I'm thinking well, there are many, many examples, but, you know, it, it, it's easy to imagine that. Uh, uh, but um, it, it's hard to equate that with the absolute determination, I would see, of, of the international community to uphold current international boundaries on one level. Any other questions? You don't see terribly... I mean, there's no one suggesting in the West that reimagining Ukraine as uh, three states, are there? I, I don't think. Well, I mean, we were close to imagining Britain as a different Britain until very recently. So I think... Um, you know, with the Scottish yeah, elections, yeah. and therefore, you know, the, the fantasy and reality. Sometimes, you know, the borderline, <laughs> to go back to the borders, the borderline is, no the line is very thin. And, uh, you know, who knows, really? Well, exactly. Uh, I mean, there's no reason yeah. to suppose it would, mm. it would be an ordered process. Yeah. Uh. But, I mean, you mentioned something interesting and how, about how the international community always, or historically, has always resisted redrawing boundaries yeah. for the obvious reasons. But, but then you look at yeah. Eritrea, you look at Sudan, yeah. you look but at Sudan. I mean, it did take a long time, but it's not, you know, always fantasy. And who knows what will happen in this region that, you know, borders may or may not stay the same. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that, that to, to argue that they're likely to mm. endure is to suggest that there are in any way, mm. that that in any way would be a good thing or a positive thing. Yeah. Let's uh, see if any other person, and I'll 
probably be you'll be the last one. Any other questions on this side? No. Okay. You could have the last one again. The source of perhaps instability in the sense that uh, states would maybe be hesitant to grant uh, autonomy to um, certain regions afraid that it will lead to secession, as well as um, uh, encouraging counter-state movements and giving them hope that maybe one day they can form their own state. So where is that line, and should we just put a red line and say this is it, it will never change, and in the long term that may be more stable? Just the thought. I mean, obviously, giving autonomy to certain provinces of, or uh, certain regions of the state historically has been seen as a way of holding the state together uh, as much as, uh, I mean, historically, some parts of a state um, want autonomy to be called independence. If you look at uh, Quebec, uh, Ultimately, it didn't want to break from Canada uh, because I think it got more out of Canada than uh, perhaps uh, uh, than, uh, but it wanted its autonomy to be called independence. Um, you could see a future where the, the KRG, if, if not already, is effectively independent anyway, but uh, with its own government in many ways, but uh, obviously cannot call itself that as such. Uh, so um, I think as long as <clears throat> break, potential breakaway regions of a state aren't too hung up about the formalities of independence, there's obviously going to be possibly a few instances where they have effective independence through, through autonomy. Um, I can't think of too many contexts where you would threaten the... Uh, I mean, look at Britain. Uh, <laughs> you know... Uh, has, has, has granting uh, uh, devolution of powers uh, to, to the, the composite nations of the Union, has that whetted the appetite for independence? Uh, it's difficult to say. I think it depends on the, on the region you're in. Yeah, I think I mean, you're absolutely right, Richard. I mean, look, if you look at Lebanon, I mean, since um, you know, the 1970s, they've been talking about partition and uh, you know, through, throughout civil war, but everybody has an interest in keeping Lebanon as it is. Given how difficult its situation is, surrounded by all these countries and the multiple wars, internal and external, and nobody has an interest in, in you know, separating itself from Lebanon. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so fantasies and realities, sometimes, you know, people get carried away. <laughs> but, no, I mean, yeah. clearly you're in a, in a more uncertain uh, time here with respect mm. to, you know, I mean, Yemen's always faced that problem of, of not extending its sovereign reach over its state territory, but obviously uh, Syria, Iraq, and, and Libya, which we haven't mentioned, it, it, it's a rather different story. Mm. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you very much for a very comprehensive and spatial <laughs> uh, uh, discussion of, of, of uh, history, geography, politics, uh, and law. Thank you very much, Richard, and please do join me in uh, thanking Richard for this uh, interesting talk.